Hi, WorkWell listeners. I'm really excited to share that my book, Work Better Together, is officially out. Conversations with WorkWell guests and feedback from listeners like you inspired this book. It's all about how to create a more human-centered workplace. And as we return to the office for many of us, this book can help you move forward into post-pandemic life with strategies and tools to strengthen your relationships and focus on your well-being. It's available now from your favorite book retailer. When I think about some of the best leaders I've known in my career, a couple of common themes pop up for me. They were all great listeners. They were empathetic. They cared about my personal well-being and the well-being of others. And they always had my back. These are also signs of emotional intelligence, also known as EQ. It's an essential leadership skill that can help you build meaningful connections and high-performing teams. This is the WorkWell podcast series. Hi, I'm Jen Fisher, Chief Wellbeing Officer for Deloitte, and I'm so pleased to be here with you today to talk about all things well-being. I'm here with Dr. Dan Goldman. He's an internationally known psychologist, science journalist, and co-director of the Consortium for Research on Emotional Intelligence in Organizations at Rutgers. He's also the author of the best-selling books, Emotional Intelligence, Social Intelligence, and Focus, The Hidden Driver of Excellence. Dan, welcome to the show. Well, thanks. It's a pleasure to be here, Jen. Can you tell us a little bit about who you are, your personal story, and why emotional intelligence? You know, in my world, in my lifetime, especially, I look at you as the father of emotional intelligence and everything I ever learned or started to read about the subject came from you. So it's a real honor to have you on the show. Well, you know, I think the best things in life happen by accident. We just <laughs> have to be ready for them. Uh, I never planned to be like Mr. Emotional Intelligence. It <laughs> happened. I started out, um, I got a doctorate in clinical psychology, but I've always loved writing. Mm. And I was recruited out of graduate school pretty much to... Um, be an editor at a magazine that then was a very big magazine, Psychology Today. Uh, and from there, I was recruited to the science section of the New York Times, uh, where I was a science writer, which is really what I wanted to do, because I saw it as translating from secret language of specialty in, in academic journals to a story that anybody could understand that was interesting, that was meaningful, that helped people. Uh, I saw it really as a kind of public education endeavor. And so I was doing that, and I realized that I was covering a lot of new science about emotions in the brain particularly. And I thought, well, that would be a really great book. And one of the articles I had read in a kind of obscure journal was called Emotional Intelligence. I didn't make up the phrase. It was an article by a friend of mine, uh, Peter Salovey, who's now the president of Yale University, and his then graduate student, John Mayer. But I thought, wow, that is such a terrific phrase. It's like an oxymoron. You don't, <laughs> intelligence can go with emotion. And uh, I use that as the title of a book, which was about emotions and us, the brain and uh, how it matters for us, self-awareness, self-management, empathy, our relationships, it's everywhere. 
Uh, and that became emotional intelligence. And then after I wrote that book, I got interested in how it mattered for work life. I had written a small chapter, uh, Managing with Heart, in the book Emotional Intelligence, but it got a huge response, particularly right. from the business community. And I thought, gee, I, there's something here. And I went back to something I had um, been doing uh, in graduate school at Harvard with David McClellan, who was my main professor, which was what was then a new idea. It was called competence modeling. You look at the 10% uh, top performers in any field by whatever metric made sense for that field. It could be engineering. It could be consulting. It could be uh, writing software. It didn't matter. You just look at the top 10% and then you, you analyze what do these top performers do that you don't see in people who are mediocre? And that, that would be the competence. Uh, and what distinguishes them? It's not what everybody can do. Everybody can write code, but what makes someone influential as a code writer, for example? Uh, that becomes a, a competence itself, influence. And so I went back and looked at what competencies seem to be based on emotional intelligence how we manage ourselves, how we handle our relationships, how we tune into other people, how we tune into ourselves, and uh, how, how what uh, competencies are really purely cognitive, like software writing, for example. And um, that became the basis for another book about competence and emotional intelligence, working with emotional intelligence. And then I did one for Harvard Business Review on leadership and emotional intelligence. Uh, I think they wanted me to do that book because I'd written an article for them on the competencies of leaders. It was called What Makes a Leader that went platinum, essentially. It was the most requested reprint they'd ever had in their history. So it, there was clearly an interest in demand. Uh, and so after a while, I left the New York Times because I was too busy <laughs> you know, giving talks and so on and emotional intelligence. So that was the accident that happened to me. Got it. So let's start with the basics. What are emotions and how do they impact us? Emotions are the brain's way of making us pay attention to something it thinks is important mm. and telling us in the feeling tone we get uh, what to do about it. Uh, something makes us depressed. We don't do much. Something makes us angry. We do a, maybe a lot, maybe too much. And uh, the emotional centers in our emotional repertoire was uh, designed in early human prehistory mm -hmm. to help us survive. Today, that can be a problem because it marshals the same biological response. You know, we secrete the stress hormones that prepare us for the fight or flight or freeze response. That doesn't work in the modern office that well. What is emotional intelligence and, and why is it important in life, but also in the workplace? Well, I, I think of it as being intelligent about emotion. How do you how do you handle emotions? Emotions are important. You know, they tell us uh, a, a felt meaning moment to moment to moment. We take emotions with us everywhere, at home, at work. doesn't matter where you are. You always feel something. And emotional intelligence is basically four parts, the way I see it. Self-awareness, knowing what you're feeling, why you feel it, how it makes you think or perceive uh, what your impulse is because of that feeling. 
then managing the feeling, particularly if it's going to get you in trouble. And this is where it comes, uh, becomes very important at work because one of the things emotions were designed to do in the brain is hijack us and make us do what in evolution we thought was essential to survive. Today, that might be not such a good thing to do because the emotional brain gets a fuzzy picture and it has a, uh, operational principle of I'd rather be safe than sorry. It's like a hair trigger. And it makes us uh, fall back on overlearned responses, often childish. So, you know, at, at work, you can be thinking, this guy's not treating me fair. I'd like to slug him. That's the way the emotional centers think. And uh, if you're lucky, they'll put that together with information that goes to the more rational prefrontal area, the brain's executive. And it will uh, add the piece of information that, oh, you know, this is your boss. So maybe, okay, <laughs> I'll smile and change the subject. So that's being intelligent about emotion. That's the second part. Managing emotions, not just handling disruptive ones, but also keeping focused on your goals, staying flexible, come, being able to come up with an innovative response, for example. Uh, staying positive, realizing you can get better. People can get better what's called a growth mindset these days. Right. Then another part is empathy, tuning into other people. And here it's important to know there are three kinds of empathy. One is purely cognitive. I get how you think about this. I understand your perspective. This helps me message very well with you. I can say things in terms I know you'll understand. But there's another kind of empathy, which is emotional empathy. I feel what you feel. Mm. And this helps me be more attuned to you, to have rapport. And then there's a third kind of empathy, which is concern or caring. It makes me want to be kind to help you. That's the kind of empathy you want in your colleagues, in your boss, in your spouse, in the people in your life. Uh, but each of them is based in a different part of brain circuitry. And then you can use that empathy for effective relationships, you know, to help guide people, to influence them, to inspire them, uh, to resolve conflicts, to uh, be a good team player, things like that. When it comes to the workplace, I mean, there's so, <laughs> there's such a sordid history around emotions in the workplace. Um, you know, I, I think the most common that I hear Maybe not so much anymore, but, you know, the workplace is no place for emotions. Um, you know, only show positive emotions in the workplace, you know, positive vibes only. What, I guess, what's your perspective on that or kind of what's the, the, the danger or the fallacy in that? Well, sometimes people think um, being emotionally intelligent is the same as always being nice. I yeah. really disagree with that. <laughs> uh, the reason is this, that uh, just keeping things harmonious is good, but it's not enough. I think mm -hmm. instead of just being nice, you need to be kind. To be kind, you may have to tell something that somebody something they don't really want to hear. Right. Uh, give feedback that uh, might you know, uh, disturb someone's uh, equanimity, but it will help them do better. This, you see this in performance feedback, which, by the way, is very often done poorly. <laughs> uh, but one of the good things that can come from performance feedback is helping someone hear 
what it is they would benefit from improving. Mm. That's being kind, I would say. Being nice is never telling them in the first place that they need to improve. And I don't think that's useful in the workplace. So is this, in your view, is emotional intelligence, is it innate? Is it something that we all have? Is it something, I know it's something that can be learned or practiced. So um, how do we how do we practice it? How do we tune into it? Like, are all people emotionally intelligent? I, I don't think so. I've come across many who aren't. <laughs> um, well, let, me, let me unpack that. Yeah, please those do. Are, those are three different questions. One is the nature-nurture question. Mm. Uh, and then I'm going to come back to you, Jen, and say, what were those other two questions? <laughs> the nature-nurture. The fact is that we're all born with emotional capacities. They vary greatly mm. from person to person. Uh, and um, as you said, the good news is that all of this is learned and learnable. So you're given, you know, set points for your neurotransmitters in the brain that determine whether you're outgoing, whether you're shy, and so on. But all of that can be changed with learning. And this is where uh, helping people get better at emotional intelligence is so important because people can improve. But there are several basic steps to improving. Uh, the first one is ask yourself or the other person, do you really care? Because it takes a little time and a little effort. There's a window of opportunity uh, for kids. And this is why I'm a big advocate of getting this into schools and what's called social emotional learning, uh, helping kids get it right in the first place. Because the emotional and social centers of the brain are the last part of the brain to become anatomically mature. We can help kids be get better at managing their impulses, for example. It's called cognitive control. It's a very important ability. And uh, it's shaped in childhood. Kids can learn to do better. Cognitive control predicts your financial success in your 30s, your health in your 30s. Cognitive control at midlife uh, predicts your longevity. It's a really important ability. And it's part of emotional intelligence. It's learned and learnable. So the first step is, do you care? The second step is, um, what are you really good at and what are you not so good at? Emotional intelligence is a profile of strengths and weaknesses across all the competencies. So um, maybe you need to get better at listening. This is, this is really the common cold of management. People tend to feel like, I don't have time for this, or they interrupt someone who comes to see them and take over the conversation. Maybe you want to listen someone out. That means you have to do the third thing, which is develop a learning plan for yourself. Mm. Essentially, a step you're going to take to change a habit. And the habit is, the old habit is interrupting and taking over the conversation. The new habit is listening people out before you speak what you have to say. And that takes time takes patience to get there. Uh, it helps to have some support. You need support because you're going to have bad days. Right. And when you have a bad day, you want to go back and review what happened and prepare yourself for the next time that comes around, for example. So it helps to have someone to talk to, someone to practice with. And then finally, there's practicing at every naturally occurring opportunity, which, by the way, may be with your kids, your teenager, may not be at work. The brain doesn't distinguish, so you can practice whenever the chance comes along. 
You had a third question, I forget. No, actually, I think you answered all three of them in your your answer. So I appreciate that. But let's kind of dig into this further. In the workplace, you know, you mentioned emotional intelligence and kind of learning emotional intelligence or developing those skills at the top of the house, the leadership level. Why is it important for leaders, I guess, in particular? But what I'm also hearing you say is that it's important for everybody in the workplace. Well, uh, I'm just doing an article that reviews all of the, uh, by now, the critical mass of findings on emotional intelligence. And it shows that when leaders are emotionally intelligent, the people they're leading do much better by whatever metric you use. Uh, People will work harder, will help other people out, will be more engaged, uh, many, many metrics of this. Uh, so it helps the organization when leaders are more emotionally intelligent. But also, it's it's a system. And you want to shape an emotionally intelligent culture. You want to have it at every level uh, to get maximal impact from it. That's why I'm interested in, in the uh, part of the organization that's below the top of the house because there are ways mm-hmm. to upgrade everybody uh, which are cost-effective. Uh, I think coaching is really important, but you can go beyond that because essentially you want to create an emotional intelligence culture in an organization, and that means uh, reach everybody. Yeah, and, and the, the people that are below the top of the house now will become the leaders of the future. <laughs> exactly, so, yeah. exactly, yeah. And so you mentioned, um, especially with, with schools and children, you mentioned emotional and social intelligence. Can you talk about the difference between emotional and social intelligence? What is social intelligence? How is that different? Well, in my model, I actually put the two together. Some people see emotional intelligence as just having to do with uh, self-leadership, self-awareness and self-management, and social intelligence is empathy, uh, how you handle relationships. I see that as part and parcel of the same set of abilities. They're highly complementary, I'd say. Has your understanding evolved or changed over the years? Like what's changed? What have we learned recently about emotions? And I I guess I'm reflecting also a little bit on the pandemic and what we've all been living through. I feel like there's a lot of discussion on emotional intelligence, but also just our ability to kind of practice and learn (laughs) has has been stunted somewhat, I think. It's very interesting. I don't think emotions have changed, uh, you know, in the last uh, 50,000 years. I think that we we have the same structure of the brain and the same structure of the emotional centers and so on. Uh, I don't know that we've learned that much new in recent years about how all those systems operate. What has changed, though, is that we've been isolated. We've had lockdowns. We've had mm-hmm. to work by... Uh, remote teleconference. And this changes what matters about how we handle our emotions, particularly uh, our negative emotions and also our empathy. Because there's a problem, there's a st- actually a hardware problem uh, on t- with teleconference. If you're face-to-face, you can have eye contact. If you're doing a teleconference, you can't. The reason is that when you look to camera, 
a person thinks you're looking in their eyes, but if you look at the person's face, you have to look off camera mm -hmm. on your screen, and that breaks the connection. So uh, eye contact is the fundamental way two brains connect in face-to-face -face interaction. So if you can't do that, I think it means you need to put more effort into empathy. And there are many, many signals that come across in a teleconference that tell you what a person is feeling. Facial expression, tone of voice, those are huge, uh, very huge carriers of emotional information. And those two alone will help you empathize. You can't look a person in the eye, but you can see the person's face as they're speaking. And that helps you. Uh, what's really bad on a teleconference is that there's the temptation to look at your phone. I remember I was called in by a company, I can't say which, <laughs> makes a teleconference package that it sells to other companies. And they had a problem with their own people using their own teleconference software, which was people would be looking at their phones instead of to the person who was talking. But of course, the person who's talking sees the person look away. Mm -hmm. In other words, what in poker you would call a tell, uh, which is a small movement that indicates what's actually going on with you. The tells on a teleconference matter enormously mm. because they send the message to the person, if you're not fully attending, that you don't care what they're saying. If you're the leader, if you're the most powerful person in that group on that call, uh, it's particularly damaging because it says to everyone in the group, the, uh, the leader doesn't care about this person. So it means that we have to be more careful about uh, managing ourselves and being self-aware as well as being empathic on, on Zoom or on any teleconference. Yeah, I also have found that the, um, which I turn it off, the feature um, to look at yourself. <laughs> um, you know, I, I feel like a lot of people are, you know, for me, it was, you know, I would get distracted by looking at myself and saying right. things like, wow, do I look that tired? Do I look that old? Do I like, you know, and you come, you become consumed yeah. with yourself as opposed to looking at the other person and paying attention to what's going on with them. Exactly. And in face to face, we usually don't have a mirror. Right. Exactly. <laughs> You're not looking at yourself, <laughs> which I always found to be like, a really interesting functionality. I haven't figured out the purpose of it exactly. Um, anyway, well, that's a, I think it's good for a quick check beforehand. You know, yeah. like, then I, turn I, it I, off. Whatever. Yeah, then turn it off and look at the person. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, how is human resilience tied to emotional intelligence? Resilience is part of emotional intelligence. Remember, self-management is one of the four parts, and. Um, in, in my competence model, uh, I talk about emotional balance, which means being hand, able to handle disruptive emotions, uh, but not, you know, you know, you want your positive feelings. Of course, you want to bring that to any interaction to work. But one of the uh, abilities that's a metric for emotional balance is resilience operationally. Technically, we talk about resilience as the time it takes you to recover from the peak of upset back to your baseline calm. 
Uh, and we find that the more often and the longer someone practices a tool that will help them become more emotionally imbalanced, like mindfulness, for example, the quicker their recovery time becomes. In other words, they become more resilient. And resilience these days is, I think, more important than ever for the reasons you mentioned, Jen, mm -hmm. which is that, uh, you know, COVID and uh, the economy and the uncertainties of the day make us uh, triggered more often and upset more easily. So the ability to recover from that upset has a premium that I think is greater than ever. Yeah, I, I completely agree. So let's kind of get specific and talk about strategies or ways that we can build our own personal emotional intelligence. What are kind of your, do you have some go-to favorite strategies or what are some of the more common or, you know, popular ones, I guess? Um, what, what, what do you, where, where do you start when you want to build your emotional intelligence? It depends what you need to build, I would say. <laughs> so let me talk in general about uh, what helps most people most of the time. And as you know from uh, coaching, you need to individualize this too. You need to tailor it to a particular person's needs. But uh, one of the things that helps strengthen emotional intelligence across the board, I mentioned briefly before, that's mindfulness. Mm -hmm. uh, because the ability to the capacity to shift your relationship to your feelings and thoughts, to see anger as something that's coming and going rather than catches you in its grip, for example. That's a very valuable lesson, and mindfulness helps you with that. Uh, and I just uh, published a book with a, fr a friend of mine who's a neuroscientist at the University of Wisconsin, Richard Davidson. Mm -hmm where we reviewed all the major findings on uh, mindfulness meditation. And it, it, it's very strange. Uh, mindfulness, the, the, the main person in introducing mindfulness is a third friend of mine, John Kabat-Zinn. Right. Uh, oddly enough, Richie Davidson, we all call him Richie, and I and Johnny were friends in uh, Cambridge in the 70s before anybody heard of any of us, uh, and but we've all continued to be interested in this in one way or another. So in the mindfulness scientific literature, uh, what we found is that people become, uh, as I said, uh, more able to manage their upsetting emotions. They become more calm and more clear. And becoming clear means that whatever your cognitive talents, whatever your abilities, you can express them uh, to at peak because you are clear. It's it's our distractions. It's our the biggest distraction, by the way, is emotional upset. That's what keeps us being our, our us at our best. So uh, it helps you be calm and kind. And very often in mindfulness. There's a method called the circle of caring, where you think about helping people who have helped you, and you're grateful for that, and then people you love, how you can help them, people you know, how you can help them, and then you expand the circle. It turns out that that exercise uh, makes people more caring and kind and compassionate, more likely to help someone in need. 
And it turns out it also seems to strengthen the circuitry in the brain for doing just that. So I would say that, uh, Jen, you asked for what can help emotional intelligence. Uh, and I would say mindfulness is one thing. Second thing that can help is feedback. This is where your spouse or your teenager or your uh, trusted partner or colleague at work can help you by letting you know, uh, A, what you're pretty good at and B, what you could get better at. This, of course, is the essence of coaching. Uh, but not everyone can have a coach, but everybody can have a friend mm -hmm. and someone you trust and someone who uh, can be honest with you. That, that's something very valuable. So as it, you know, we talked about emotionally intelligent organizations. Um, are there things that team leaders, particularly, I mean, for us at Deloitte, a lot of you know, where the rubber meets the road is on our teams, right? The people that we work with sure. day in, day out, as opposed sure. to, yes, it's important to have top of the house, emotionally intelligent leaders, but, you know, these team leaders that we engage with every day, are there things that team leaders can do to help build the emotional intelligence of their teams? You know, the best research on teams and emotional intelligence is by Vanessa Druscat at the University of New Hampshire. She studied teams for decades now, and she finds that there's a, an emergent emotional intelligence at the team level, mm. which predicts very well uh, how the effectiveness and performance of that team. The higher the collective emotional intelligence, the better the performance of the teams, which she finds across the board. And this means that teams develop uh, mostly intelligent norms. The, so, for example, the equivalent of individual self-awareness is a self-aware team. It's a team where um, people know each other's strengths and weaknesses. It's also a team where they have the equivalent of emotional balance. They can manage their collective emotions very well. There's a very high sense of psychological safety, which is what Google found when they studied their mm -hmm. high performing teams. Uh, she calls it a sense of belonging. People feel safe and secure. So they can name uh, issues that are simmering and, and, you know, surface them and deal with them. They can say, you know, so-and-so would be better at this than this other person without hurting that other person's feelings because they can be candid with each other because they trust each other. Uh, and so uh, these are some of the qualities of emotionally intelligent teams. And the team leader can help in making explicit these norms. So, for example, at IDEO, which is the innovative consultancy, um, if you uh, interrupt someone, people will pelt you with stuffed animals. It's <laughs> one way of letting you know you just broke the norm which is you should let someone finish what they're saying before you interrupt. I'd love, I'd love to know their version of that in a virtual world. <laughs> <laughs> but I like that idea a lot. <laughs> so is there such thing as like full emotional mastery or is it just something we're all human so we make mistakes and we just continue to develop throughout life or are there actually people that have full mastery of their emotions. I've never met one. <laughs> well, that's good to know for the rest of us. <laughs> Actually, I've spent a little bit of time over the years with the Dalai Lama. He may be the most emotionally intelligent person I've encountered. 
However, most of us uh, could use a little help here and there. There's a, a saying in Zen, all of us are perfect, and we could use a little development too. Yeah, I like that. Continuous learning, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so you know, when you make a mistake or when you do something that isn't emotionally intelligent, how do you handle that? How do you apologize? Like, What are the strategies for reconciling with emotional intelligence when you make a mistake? I think apologies are very powerful. Uh, you know, you, what you're doing is acknowledging that you may have hurt that person's feelings, that you regretted, and that you want to start with a clean slate. Let's let's do a uh, you know do over there. Um, I th I think it's as simple as that. Okay, and then you know I guess my my last question for you, um, you know you're you're a writer, so what? What role, I mean, is writing a strategy? What role does writing play in self-reflection, self-awareness, and kind of emotional oh. building emotional intelligence? Well, that's very interesting. I think that journaling can be very powerful, but I've never done it myself. <laughs> the people who, who do it say it's been very helpful. Uh, I do a newsletter. Uh, it's on LinkedIn. It's yeah. free. Uh, and it's on emotional intelligence. That helps me stay current, also doing a book uh, about it, which is about the emotionally intelligent organization. Mm. Uh, and this helps me stay very current in my thinking and up with, you know, staying uh, current with the research, which is important too. Uh, but I think that uh, research actually says that journaling can be a very powerful way to help you uh, or us manage our emotions, reflect on our emotions, understand more deeply what's happening to us and in our world. So I think it's very powerful. Got it. Okay, so I lied. I actually have one more question that just popped in my head. Okay. <laughs> so if there's somebody in your life, perhaps at work or otherwise, that is just completely lacking in all emotional intelligence, how can you help? Like, how can you help them? What do you say other than saying you have no emotional intelligence whatsoever? <laughs> well, how can you help that person, you know, see that they, that they too need to practice and kind of need help in this area? Think about the power relationship you have with that person. Is it your spouse? Is it your child? Is it a coworker? Is it someone senior to you in your workplace? Mm -hmm. All of those suggest uh, different kinds of diplomacy, but in general, uh, you would never say you lack emotional intelligence, I, I think. Instead, you might tell them what they're good at mm. and segue into what would help them if they were to improve. Uh, and if you're able to, um, suggest some ways that they could get better at it. Um, I think it goes back to being kind, right? <laughs> be be kind and remember kind doesn't mean being nice. It means giving the person the important information in a way they can hear. There's a wonderful series of books called Talking So Kids Will Listen and Listening So Kids Will Talk. And I think that principle applies to anyone. Yeah, I completely agree. Can you let the listeners know how they can follow you, how they can learn more from you and learn more about the work that you do in emotional intelligence? Sure. Uh, there are several ways. Uh, one is uh, I have a podcast like this. It's called uh, First Person Plural. Uh, 
uh, and it's on most podcast platforms. A second is if you want to go more deeply into specifics of emotional intelligence, you can look at the building blocks of emotional intelligence. Uh, it's a series of primers on each competence available from Keystep Media, one word, Keystep Media. Uh, and uh, if you're interested in building out emotional intelligence in your organization, uh, I'm starting the Goldman Consulting Group to help with that. Uh, this is to get to people who don't qualify particularly for coaching because that's top of the house, but to help get it into the organization more generally. Well, Dr. Goldman, thank you for being on the show. Um, this was such a rich dialogue for me. I know the listeners will get so much out of your wisdom um, and everything. Thank you for everything that you've put out in the world that has helped so many people, including myself. Um, it was a real honor to have you on the show. Well, Janet, it's been my pleasure. You've had some great questions. Uh, and thanks again for having me. I'm so grateful Dan could be with us today to talk about emotional intelligence. Thank you to our producers, Rivet360, and our listeners. You can find the WorkWell podcast series on Deloitte.com, or you can visit various podcatchers using the keyword WorkWell, all one word, to hear more. And if you like the show, don't forget to subscribe so you get all of our future episodes. If you have a topic you'd like to hear on the WorkWell podcast series, or maybe a story you would like to share, please reach out to me on LinkedIn. My profile is under the name Jen Fisher, or on Twitter at JenFish23. We're always open to your recommendations and feedback. And of course, if you like what you hear, please share, post, and like this podcast. Thank you and be well. <laughs>